It's about this time of the retreat when uh, many of us begin to see the inner responses we have to what's going on around us and responses to maybe something comes up within us and then there is a reactivity to what we see come up within us. And so I wanted to speak about equanimity and reactivity today because um, it could be helpful to all of us who are seeing ourselves so clearly like that. The name of this talk is Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. Because um, I heard this term from the Reverend Howard Thurman, who was the co-founder of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And he, in a collection of his meditations, wrote uh, Deep is the Hunger, a piece of work he did, in which he named this tranquil spirit, seeing the world with quiet eyes, as one of the subjective experiences of equanimity. So equanimity, subjectively to me, is a calm inner quiet, but it has a balance. It has that balance of calm inner quiet while staying connected to ourselves, what's going on within ourselves. We're not abandoning what's going on in here or avoiding it, nor are we avoiding what's going on outside of us. So there can be that quietness and openness, spaciousness and balance, even when we're staying connected. So it's an important subject to reflect upon because of these times and the society we live in. It's so difficult to navigate these times when you feel like um, everything's going a lot faster than you can keep up with. Um, there's just so much in the world that comes to us more quickly than before with this electronic age and speed we live in and the amount of information that we get is just overwhelming. Um, I've had to do times when I'm on a news fast because it's just too much. And it really helps because then it is, uh, gives me the ability to stay calm yet open to what's going on. I know that sometimes if I'm and not listening to the news that I'll hear about it pretty soon, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, we can do something about it. In Hawaii, where I live, things are slower. So when I come to what we call the mainland, <laughs> which is here, um, it's like I have to be in another speed inside. Sometimes I'll, um, I'll know when somebody puts, you know, time sensitive on, on that, you know, top line when you open up your email. And it's not usually someone from Hawaii. <laughs> um, you know, I worked for uh, a cemetery and a mortuary for 20 years doing different things in the office and working with the people. And um, so I worked with people in the realm of death and dying a lot. And 
so there are Pacific Islanders, there are people from all of the different um, Asian countries in, in Hawaii. And so when they come to like make arrangements for burying their dead, their the deceased, or um, they're just wanting to look at like the grave plot they're going to have, because people, people want to be buried together as a family. So that's how it goes in, in Hawaii. Well, they come with everybody. You know, and when they come in, like the Pacific Islanders, they'll come in and they'll just kind of be going at a slow gait, and you know that you have to spend maybe two hours with them instead of one in helping them, because maybe about 15 people come in. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's all these people come in, and you know, they all want to have a say about something. And so it, it, it's been wonderful to work that way uh, in my life. And if you're in a if you're in a um, a shopping center and you know you're you're kind of walking around with people of the Pacific Islander people or Asian people, it's like so the pace is so much slower. If you're behind them and you're in a hurry, you're in trouble because you have to go at that pace. And it's really lovely because you really take in life more. It isn't always that way. Honolulu is a whole different. It's, it's just like a big city. But in the small, smaller island of Maui, it's slower. So not used to the accessibility and speed sometimes of a lot of information, the news, and strong emotions that naturally arise that we see in relationship to the news of the world. Um, there's a lot of reactivity. And uh, even though I live in a slow-paced place, still there's a lot of reactivity to what goes on in relationship to the rest of the world. So a lot of what we're learning to do in our lives here is to notice those habitual patterns of reactivity that come up within us in relationship to things we remember at home or things that come up in our own minds. And we, we might have a, a thought that we think is not such a, a lovely thought and then there's reactivity to our own thinking. One of my friends said that she felt pummeled by her um, relationship to her own thoughts. It, that was harder than her relationship to, her wor to the world around her. She felt pummeled by her own reactivity to herself. And um, I, I can see how that could be so, just watching my own mind. Sometimes it's like that, but not all the time. So reactivity is the opposite of equanimity, and I'll fill that out more because it's the far enemy of reactivity. It's a far enemy in two ways. It's either reactivity through aversion or reactivity through attachment. So here we're finding that place within us, that refuge within us to feel safe, to see the habit patterns of our minds. And you'll notice that when you're talking about maybe 
an awful habit pattern you think you have, I'm saying, oh good, because I'm happy that you see it. <laughs> like I've been saying to all of you, it's better to see it than not to see it, because when we don't see it, it's in the unconscious. It's in ignorance or delusion. But when we see it, it's in awareness. It's in conscious awareness. And so there we have a chance to really do something about it. Maybe to respond with compassion. So I want to quote uh, Thomas Merton now. He's an American Trappist monk from the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. He's also a poet. He was a poet, social activist, and a student of comparative religion. And uh, he was really interested in the Dharma, actually, and went to Sri Lanka to attend a meeting or a gathering and to learn more. And actually, that's where he passed away. That's where he died. So what he's saying here that I'm going to repeat to you verifies a lot of what we may have learned to be true being here and knowing how busy our lives are that um, we just see the ramifications of our own busy life when we sit and be quiet. So this is called Courageous Rest, which is what we're doing here. I, I hope to name um, a retreat. <laughs> courageous rest at some point. <laughs> I'm not sure a lot of people would come to that, but <laughs> anyway. Um, he says, some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when, in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform sometimes especially in today's high-speed world. So this is a radical thing that, that we're doing here. I'm sure many of you have had your own experiences when you tell people who aren't so familiar with a retreat, like, uh, where are you going? And you say, oh, to a retreat. Well, what are you going to do there? They think maybe it's a holiday, you know. And you say, well, this is a schedule, if you dare to say that, you know. <laughs> Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and then finally, you know, maybe a Dharma talk or eating some of the high points of the day. Um, and they, they can't believe it. They can't, and they can't believe you're, in, you're going to be in silence, right? Have, have you experienced that? From, yeah, it's really... And then we feel kind of proud of ourselves, too, you know, <laughs> that we're different and we've got that kind of courage and all of that. And... Um, but it is one of the things that when people first come to a retreat, they're most afraid of or they're shaky about, like, how could I ever be silent for that long? But it's usually the one thing that people say they're most, um, they most enjoyed or they most felt uplifted by or uh, they liked it. So uh, we come here and we, we're allowing ourselves to feel vulnerable, actually. 
if you thought you were coming here from that, you, for that, you wouldn't come. But you think we're coming for peace. You know, we're going to sit down and just feel all peaceful and calm. And we do that because if that happens because meditation is like we're developing this still forest pool where um, we can really feel that in ourselves. And we do feel moments of that. But in that still forest pool, it gets so still and it gets so calm that we can look into the pool and we can see deeply into the pool. We can see layers that are happening, debris that's there, currents that have been going around in that pool from time immemorial that we haven't seen before. And we, we also see, when we look in a different way, we see the mirror of who we really are. And, you know, we can say a lot more different things about that. But there, there we have the ability to see what this mind and body is really made up of. This continuum that we call Kamala, or whatever your name is. So it's understandable that we feel vulnerable when we come here because we see into that deep forest pool of this mind and body continuum and we see the agitation and the depression and the anxiousness of our lives and all the things that we don't see because it's busy and we're responsible human beings and maybe we take our responsibility too seriously. So, you know, um, just a little sideline, and I don't really usually expose my private, my very private life, but, um, you know, uh, my Dharma partner Steve is going through something really difficult, a health concern for himself, and so, um, it was more important for me to be near him than to take care of my responsibilities. So I backed out of three huge retreats. I didn't back out of this one, as you can see, I'm here. Um, and that was really hard for me to do, because I, I know I feel like overly responsible sometimes. But it felt really good to do that and to attend to something human, you know, and uh, people it was hard for some, in some areas, but people really understood, and um, I feel really good about that. That I'll, I'll be there for Steve, you know, I can, um, whatever he needs. So the Dharma, in the Dharma, the Buddha often spoke about these eight worldly conditions that we're all pummeled by in a way. And um, this praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. It's all, even in one sitting, you can see there are pleasurable moments, there are painful moments. It, you just, you know, it's, you just let a minute go by and it changes. It's like the inner weather pattern can change so quickly. Joys and sorrows, the ups and downs of life. And it's a major reason we feel this existential suffering, this existential vulnerability in our lives. 
because we're, we're always feeling this, but we, we're trying to pinpoint it. It's because of this. It's because of this loss. It's because of somebody else is acting in a certain way or whatever it is we're putting it on. But in a bigger, deeper picture, it's this vulnerability of all the change that we go through. Moment to moment, we're seeing it. In some beautiful moment, is experienced and then it slips through our fingers like water. And then the moments of difficulty um, come and then we're, you know, we can say, this will pass too, and that's a relief. Um, so it's this praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow that we're experiencing all the time. That's this existential dukkha. That's this universal dukkha that we're experiencing. Of course, we like to be praised. We don't like to be criticized. We want approval and recognition, and we don't like being dismissed or rejected. Um, we prefer pleasure and not pain. These are all natural tendencies. And I, I read something from His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he was actually saying what happened to him when he was giving a Dharma talk. And I'm just going to paraphrase him now. It was a, a relief to me because if the Dalai Lama can feel that, I can too. <laughs> so, because uh, sometimes I do get these cringing moments, you know, after like I, I gave a Dharma talk or I said something really personal. I'm probably going to have some cringing moments about what I just said. But when I say something really personal, I'll get, oh, should I, should have, should I have said that? And I wonder if it's going to trigger anyone, because we try to be so careful. But I read when the Dalai Lama had those cringing moments too. <laughs> and he was in front of a large audience. And um, he, he was saying to himself something like, I wonder if I'm saying the right thing if people will blame me or praise me. And then he said something like, but right now I am on this throne giving this Dharma talk, and I must not think that way. <laughs> I mean, this is all like the thoughts that come between his, uh, probably between his sentences. He can see, I see that too. You know, I'll say something and I'll, inside I'll go, oh no. <laughs> but it's okay. Later, I'm having a cup of tea, and I'll say, tomorrow you won't even remember this. <laughs> and, and it's really true. The next day, I don't remember it at all. So what the hell, you know? Why am I <laughs> so worried? Um, but the mind is like that. It's so like that. And the, so the Dalai Lama was saying that, too, uh, that I mustn't be this way. It's praise and blame. He was reminding himself. It's praise and blame. It's gain and loss. That's the way it is. So external conditions are triggering our emotions, our thoughts, our mental states, our attitudes all the time. And um, when we're quiet, we really see that. And it, it stings. But um, hey, this is the way it is. We're getting used to it. If we can get used to this kind of thing where we see it in this quietness, we're really training the mind. We bring attention to it and we say, okay, that's what the mind does. And we get used to being able to see the mind do its thing willy-nilly, right? It's doing its thing habit. It's just this habit that it does.
So sometimes what I like to say to myself is, there's that habit again. Because what we do when we get so um, much involved with those cringing moments is we personalize it. We get identified with it. And of course, you know, it comes up a lot. So we think, this is me. And we can't even have space to think, it's just a habit. But after a while, if you see it come up more often, and you're not acting on it, then you can see it just come up as a habit and not act on it. Either acting on it by another moment of reactivity to that moment that you just reacted to the outer life. And then you can just let it go. It's not as easy as I'm saying, but if you continually train the mind in mindful awareness, you'll be able to see that where the the thought can come up, there can be awareness of it, and there's a bit of space in between. So it it doesn't have to be that you get all caught up in it, like identified with what's going on. So external conditions, painful conditions, are constantly triggering what these emotions, mental states, inner attitudes, and we're not aware of them. And that's why they become so painful because of not being aware. When there is awareness, it might be a little bit of, ooh. However, it's a possibility with that awareness that another moment won't come up to be upset because you had the previous moment. So the second arrow doesn't happen. The first arrow already hurts. When there's awareness, it it sort of stops that second arrow or it weakens that second arrow from coming and causing another layer of pain for us. So these are, there's layers of reactivity that are happening, not just something going on on the outward plane, then we react to it, then this reactivity has another one coming with it. And then that's how we develop a sense of identity around those habit patterns, because there's constant reactivity to the previous reaction. And we see that it's kind of solid, and we make that solidity into a self. So here, um, uh, in, in the practice here, when we're looking at these inner conditions, we see the formerly unseen habit patterns coming up from within and constantly bombarding us. And um, it's a good thing to see this, because when it's not seen, we, we don't understand why we feel most of the time so closed down, or we want to sleep and not face it, or we feel disconnected with ourselves, or we feel overwhelmed and either depression or anxiety gets us. And um, our hearts feel so discombobulated that we can't respond to life. The thing that we are learning to respond with now as a habit pattern, as a beneficial habit pattern, is just responding with mindful awareness. Because that is uh, not only a balm, like compassion could be, but it's also a medicine. 
because uh, when we respond with mindful awareness, it really s begins to stop those habit patterns from creating the solidity of a sense of self within our minds and um, continually acting out because we're not doing anything to stop it, just letting it do its thing. So there's important questions we need to ask ourselves in our practices. How can we stay open and connected to the outer conditions uh, and to the inner conditions of our hearts and how our heart is responding, yet have an abiding sense of clarity, an abiding sense of still being open so that we can know what's going on here and we can make an appropriate response. So it's not just about opening and being equanimous to what's going on. It's so that we can have the clarity to know what can be done next. Can we take an action or possibly not take an action? So how can we stay aware yet compassionate towards ourselves? Like when I was just saying, we react to, actually we react to our own response. It's not just to what's going on out there, but then we see what's going on in here. There's more reactivity and we don't even know where we're at sometimes. So judging ourselves is, becomes very harsh. We need this quality of equanimity to navigate this inner terrain mostly. Um, we know we can take care, or we try to do the best we can to act in the outer world, but sometimes the reactivity from the inner world just gets the best of us. We react in the outer world with what's happening in here. And we, we have no way to stop it. We just kind of, we feel the anger, we feel the attachment, and um, there's nothing interjected there, either compassion, equanimity, or awareness, which we're learning to train ourselves in here. But uh, when we don't have that, it just comes out. And we're not very effective when that happens. So, this outer terrain of our relationships, our family, our job, social, and our global responsibilities really needs us to be clear, really needs us to be balanced inside, and to really feel what's going on inside to make that decision when we can act and how we can act in the world. So equanimity implies balance, but the subjective experience is not just balance, but it's a spacious, calm balance. Not balancing on a razor's edge, like, you know, if we're just going to tip a little bit this way, we're off balance or that way. But it's like we're, we're having a very wide stance in life. Sometimes, um, I know in mindfulness-based stress, stress reduction, which I, I had taken up that course myself a long time ago, <laughs> and um, the, the, um, the example for equanimity is a mountain that has a wide base, you know, and it's very, very stable. 
And I really like that um, way it's depicted because there's a lot of stability in equanimity. It feels it has that very stable balance, not that razor's edge kind of balance. It allows our hearts to be big enough in that wide stance to contain all that life presents, the pleasure and the pain, um, the gain and the loss, and uh, all of the other ones. We really need that in, in order to survive, because that's how it is in life. We need to have a big enough space to contain everything, and then also to know how to navigate it, not just to hold it, but then what do we do? How do we navigate that place that's difficult? So I love this. Um, Of course, there are other people who light up my path, my spiritual path, and one of them is Don Juan, saying to Carlos uh, Castaneda, the art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. And we oftentimes don't see that part of life, you know, how incredibly resourceful we can be by actually nourishing the potentials we have within us of being more aware, being more compassionate, being more truthful, being more equanimous. So when I read this, I think of Nelson Mandela, um, when he was imprisoned for 27 years, and then afterwards he became the African anti-apartheid revolutionary president of South Africa. And he honed a lot of his skills being in prison, and the equanimity he must have developed to be able to go through all of that and survive it and come out really strong to lead a country, being an activist for human rights of the people of Africa who weren't given many rights. So in this big space um, of equanimity, this clear, calm balance, there can be a lot of clarity because we're not so covered with the veils and habit patterns of avoiding, ignoring, being confused, aversion, attachment to how we think it should be. It could be the opposite. It could be the willingness to face, to not ignore, to not turn away, not be confused or ruffled by what's going on, but being able to say, okay, this is a situation right now, and what am I going to do about it? Or not do, because sometimes we don't give ourselves the opportunity to take that choice. We just think we always have to do something. So this will give us the place of really coming to a wise decision inwardly of how we can act outwardly when we're calm, clear, balanced in within ourselves. We'll be able to take the most skillful action if that's called for. And sometimes, you know, we as I said, we might act just thinking we need to do something right away, when oftentimes the most skillful thing to do is to wait 
and to take in more information and then to act. So um, sometimes it's better to say, I'm not going to do anything right now about it. And that could be the wiser option. So sometimes in our practice with equanimity, we use the phrase, this is how it is right now. And I like the addition of right now to all that because when we say this is how it is, when something happens and we notice that inwardly or we notice something going on outwardly and we say this is how it is, it's like we're almost setting that in stone and saying, this, hey, this is how it is all the time. This is how I am. <laughs> and, uh, but when we say this is how it is right now, we're verifying that and confirming that this is, this is just for the moment or for these few moments that I'm feeling this or that that's going on in the world. You know, there's, in this world that we live in, um, this level of existence, all of these highs and lows, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, it's been going on from time immemorial. And we have to do the best we can to help, but um, to kind of hang on to that we're going to change all the conditions can be really disappointing all the time. This is how it is right now. We're going to see it clearly. We can care deeply and we can act wisely. Those are the three things that we're doing with equanimity. Seeing the situation as clearly as we can, spacious, calm, balanced, caring deeply about it, not just this is the way it is right now, ho-hum, you know. It's, uh, and then just go on by and turn your head. But this is the way it is right now. Care deeply about it, and what can we do about it, if we can? So equanimity in um, the Buddhist teaching is said to love. It's a kind of love that encompasses everything, yet doesn't hold on to anything doesn't try to possess anything. It just says, this is the way it works right now. It encompasses the whole view. It doesn't leave anything out. It doesn't try to ignore things. and doesn't hold on either. In the loving-kindness practice, it's said that equanimity is what makes loving-kindness more powerful. Because in loving-kindness, when we love, you know, sometimes when we get to the difficult person, which we'll go to tomorrow in our practice, um, we'll come across people that we, we don't want to open up to. And we think that, I don't want to send loving kindness to that person who is the head of some country, maybe some general in Burma or something like that. Why should I do that? You know? and. Uh, but we have to remember that loving-kindness, the practice of loving-kindness, is so our heart can open. It's not about whether they receive it or not. It's so we're practicing our heart to love unconditionally, so that no matter what happens, um, no matter whether you feel betrayed or wronged by someone, you can still love them. 
there's, you don't see that what they did was right, but you see that um, there's a po- possibility, the potential in them to know the goodness in themselves. And maybe they know that part of themselves, and you can still see it. But as we all know, when we look in our own hearts, there are many parts of ourselves. The Buddha would say that for one who develops deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. And indeed, you know, the the vipassana means seeing things as they really are. That's what the word vipassana means. And it produces wisdom. That's why we also call it insight meditation. So I witnessed a very strong and steady balance uh, from a yogi friend of mine. And some of you who've been in practice with me know that you've heard this story. But it really shows in a very down, downright human way how people experience this in, in their lives. And I, of course, um, you know, I have too in my own life, and each of you have. But uh, this is from one of my friends. Uh, some years ago, one of her grown-up sons disappeared in his early 20s. And the family did the best they could to find out what was happening uh, to this son of theirs. But none of his friends would say. And it was kind of a sense that he wasn't in great harm, but he would just wanted to disappear. And um, my a friend, the mother, was, of course, in great agony in, in herself about it. And um, it was great loss for her to do this. So she held a vigil for at least a year, maybe more. I can't remember exactly the timing. And she had a lot of patience and steadfastness keeping her in her vigil about this. It was a great loss and a mystery, and there was a lot of sorrow also, and pain. So her, her um, phrase about this was a phrase that I use for my children, all beings have their own journey. And this has helped me along the way to know that even though when I've seen my children go, for example, metaphorically speaking, down a river, and I I'm shouting at the top of my lungs, metaphorically speaking, but I have done that actually. Um, don't go down there. You're going to hit a waterfall and you're going to get really hurt. And um, no matter what I've said, they still do it, you know, especially one of them. And, <laughs> and um, and I have to say, you know, there's, there are times when it's like, oh, gosh, that was a close call. But thankfully, they all turned out pretty good. <laughs> um, a lot of ups and downs. But there's that phrase, that uh, traditional phrase, that all beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. So that's the traditional phrase of equanimity. And I, instead I changed it to all beings have their own journey. 
because it's theirs, you know, especially my own children. I, I really, I've tried my best to guide them. They've taken their own path, and that was fine in the end, you know, but I did a lot of complaining in the meantime. <laughs> um, so that's a phrase that my friend used, and she felt comforted by that phrase, because it's true. It's the truth. So eventually she and her husband traveled to Europe to be with a daughter who was about to give birth to a child, and they went there. And, um, but just before they left, they got a call that the son who had disappeared appeared. And there was, from sorrow, there was joy. From loss, there was that gain. So you could see that, you know, up and down, the ups and downs of life. And it's a lot what we all have to face. And those of you who are parents know that only too well. So they, they went through that, and that was wonderful. And when they got to Europe, the a new baby was born, beautiful baby. And then uh, not long after that, they got a call from their other son, who was uh, practicing Buddhist Buddhism with the mother. And um, that son had tragically died. And he was younger than the other one. So it was just, you know, within a short period of time, how much she endured as a, you know, being a mother. It's unbelievable. You know, how did she ever get through that? But she did. And gain and loss, you know, pleasure and pain, all of that. So it was indescribably painful. There was birth and death. There was that ultimate sorrow, an ultimate happiness. And uh, when I met her later, actually I'd come from a, a retreat from here, and uh, Steve and I went down to meet her after the service. And she said she was really helped by her practice, that she didn't know how she would have survived without the practice. And then she wrote and said um, in her writing, she said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing my son alongside the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected, one, one of the qualities of of uh, equanimity. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So one of the phrases that covers a lot of ground in relationships to my own grandchildren was that phrase I said, all beings have their own journey. But sometimes it gets really, really tough, you know. And it, especially with people really close to us, like what I'm going through in these moments now. And um, this came to me, and it came to me out of that Zen saying, um, now correct me if I'm saying it right, all my ancient twisted karma. Is that the way? Yeah. The un, this is what I, what I would say in relationship to an outer condition 
so that my inner condition can stay open, spacious, connected, and balanced. (coughs) This is the understanding. The unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless, unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. And this last part is most important, which I cannot figure out. Because doesn't the mind just want to figure all this stuff out? Like, where did, how did this happen? Where did it come from? Why did it happen? Why me? <laughs> that kind of stuff. And it's, it really tangles the mind more. So, which I cannot figure out, the unfolding resultant of countless unknowable and traceable causes and conditions. This helps my heart to open to the mystery of it all. And honestly, I feel most comforted by being in the unknown. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to try to handle this moment or this situation and respond. How it's going to turn out, I don't know, but I'm going to do my very best right now to be present with myself, with my loved one. And... We'll see what happens. That's all I can do. Because trying to kind of control the future, you know it doesn't work, but we still try it, you know, mm-hmm. everything we can. So sometimes the metaphor of a sky is used to describe that inner sense of equanimity, the heart and mind that's infinitely spacious. And that, that can help. One time a, um, a Tibetan... Rinpoche said um, in a Dharma talk that I heard, sorry that I forgot his name, that it would be like um, equanimity is like that spaciousness of the empty sky that you can throw paint up into the sky and it, it just falls back down. It doesn't stick anywhere. And so that's, that gave me a vision of, you know, things can come into this empty mind and just leave. And it doesn't have to leave any residue. It doesn't have to. Sometimes it does, and then we bring compassion to that. And it doesn't have to, if there's a really clean equanimity there. So from Achan Sumedho, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance. So we're, we're testing now to see if this is true. If this, we really can do this, and maybe sometimes we can. So equanimity is also defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. And when we look at life, it's pretty much uh, beyond our control. (laughs) We can't control it. Um, But we can have a way that we respond to it where we're not letting habit take over. We're learning how to respond almost as, as immediately as we can with awareness so that things can be reflected clearly 
and maybe that be accompanied by uh, equanimity, sometimes compassion when that's called for, sometimes simple kindness, and then clear seeing and discernment. All of those things will come. So if we look at life realistically, what has already happened and unfolded is beyond our control. It's already happened. And when we look at the past, we can't change the past. But when we look at this moment now, and we can't change the future, except in this moment how we respond to the present moment, that's changing our future. So this is what we have the uh, potential for mastery over if we do our practice. We do have huge influence, not control, but influence over how we can respond with wisdom, with wholesome qualities of mind, rather than habitual qualities of mind, which may sometimes be wholesome, but sometimes not. We see that we want to (coughs) punish, we want to be right, we want to retaliate, we want to have the last word, um, and these things come up. Uh, And it's understandable because we haven't done a lot sometimes to interject something else to kind of stop that habit from happening over and over again. So I see that, um, (coughs) am I really seeing the world with quiet eyes? I ask myself. And I don't always do that, see the world with quiet eyes. I react, I have those, granted it's not as bad as it was before, but still um, it feels really important to me to watch even those little places. They say when you practice the Dharma, it's like at first you feel like you're stepping on a rock and you can really feel that rock and you say ooh and you go away from it and the it's the big rocks that get your attention but then after a while it feels like you've just got a you know a little piece of rock in your hand somehow it got there and you were rubbing and you feel like oh this doesn't feel good and you see maybe there's a little tiny little pebble there and you brush it off but later on in the dharma it feels like you have a small speck of something in your eye and it really hurts. And that's what happens in the Dharma. You just see things, kind of subtle things, much more clearly. Things where you, you might say something a little bit off and then you say, oh, that might have hurt somebody. Be careful, be careful. So you get much more refined in your way of looking at what might hurt someone else or your own heart. And it doesn't always work that way, but as you keep on in the Dharma, you'll notice that. You'll see things where it might not have been such a bad thing, but we feel it really closely. The far enemy, as I mentioned, is reactivity, coming in two parts, either aversion to the unpleasant or attachment to the pleasant. In our training, we're learning how to recognize 
those attitudes of mind uh, so that when they come up we interject some other thing instead of going along with that and letting it play out in our mouth from our words or from our actions and maybe we can just be aware that's why being silent is so good because we're taking this vow of noble silence and if we feel something you know kind of off we don't have to say everything we feel I mean it's something um, that you know I just wonder sometimes why we always have to say how we feel why don't we keep it to ourselves sometimes Um, and just feel it and see what we can do about it ourselves so it takes strength and steadiness a lot of spacious balance a lot of humility sometimes um, you know we do have to talk to our friends about these things so that it's helpful actually to I find it's really helpful to have friends we can talk to and say you know this is what happened today and I didn't feel good about it it's like um, it's like a confession (laughs) that we make to someone and we know that person that we say it to isn't going to condemn us but be be spacious about it so good friends are helpful to to talk to and and say uh, what we need to say about how we feel about things I'm I don't want to discount that so a more truthful connection with our inner world is happening here and that way we're able to face the outer world more truthfully with more courage and we're not led around by unconscious habit patterns so we have balance an aspect of equanimity also patience is an aspect of equanimity Um, I hear that in the in uh, the Indian in India equanimity is defined as seeing with patience is that true seeing with patience you don't know okay if i listen to my parents maybe okay find out let me know um i heard that from gil fransdale so patience it is we need a lot of patience to take in what we feel inside of ourselves and around us there's a metaphor of a rock too that maintains steadiness which is a function of the strong balance a solid mass of rock not stirred by the wind so a sage is not moved by praise or blame gain or loss joy or sorrow from the Dhammapada so balance patience steadiness these are all accompanying attributes of equanimity resting the mind before it falls into extremes it's another way to describe equanimity and um, one of the things about patience is that maybe we can just wait you know when something happens just wait and you see the mind do something just let it happen let it settle down and then respond resting the mind before it falls into extremes because we can see maybe a storm brewing inside of us 
and we know that, oh, what may come out of this storm may be too strong, maybe not so good, maybe unwholesome qualities. So let's be careful here. Like Manindra says, there is a sign, there is a sign, there is an inner sign. So maybe we see the inner environment with more clarity, with more honesty, not hiding or avoiding it, but seeing it clearly. This is how it is right now, assessing the situation. If we want to take action, it's more clear, but we might want to lay low for a while. Um, I have a friend who, who says that all the time. She says, I'm laying low. <laughs> I'm laying low. And it, it really reminds me that I don't have to respond all the time. I don't have to, especially, I'm used to saying, responding, yes, and taking on more responsibility <laughs> than I really need to. And um, I, an, another friend of mine, she's a translator for the Tibetan teacher in our community, she always reminds me, Kamala, no is a complete sentence. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to do that more now. <laughs> so um, in that state of mind, when we can wait, and maybe we can say no right now, I'm not going to take that on, we can deal with whatever we have to deal with in a better way, with calmness, with reason, strong, clear, wise, more convincing. But if we're in a situation where you've already let the habit out of the hat, so to say, <laughs> and you've reacted, which happens to all of us, where an outer event you know, makes us react inwardly, um, and we, you know, we, we see that happening outwardly, we've already reacted, but then we have a reaction to that reaction and we say, oh, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? We have a second chance there because then we can bring equanimity to that second arrow, to that second piece where we reacted inside. And perhaps this is the more important place to do that because we're so hard on ourselves. And um, yeah, it's, it's a place where we can say, okay, maybe, maybe our first response is, okay, this is the way it is in here right now. And you're not saying that just with equanimity, but you're also saying that with tenderness to say, it's okay, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's not that bad. And it usually isn't. But like I say, we feel that little, you know, that little bit of speck in our eyes and we think it's, it's so, we think we're badder than we really are. I noticed this strongly when um, I was in a situation with a person who was uh, in an argument with me and I was in an argument with her too. We were in an argument and... <laughs> And I thought it was really um, heated, and I, I thought, okay, sit, sit back from this a while, give this a little space, a few moments, and there was in my mind and heart, this is how it is right now for her. And then I thought, for me too, this is the way it is for me in my heart, 
also. I'm not really clear right now. I better be quiet. So there was a chance for me to say something and I said, I'd better be quiet because I'm not really thinking clearly right now. So I'm just not going to say anything. And she said, you're right. You're not really thinking clearly. (laughs) This is a very true story. And I thought, "Um, yeah, I'm not going to say that ever again. Uh, (laughs) I might know that, but uh, (laughs) that was a third arrow. (laughs) Boy, I never got even either. (laughs) But we made friends actually not too long ago. And we're you know, everything was just put down. And we just said, okay, that's down the river. And that was really nice. So that's the far enemy, it's reactivity. And the near enemy is called the near enemy because it feels like equanimity, but it's not. It's like indifference. It's like apathy, passivity. It's uh, sometimes I heard it say in other traditions, fake equanimity, which is kind of sweet, you know, it's like, it's not really equanimity, you're just like ignoring, like, okay, I'm cool about this, and walk away, do your own thing. Um, Not really caring, not really connecting with the situation, and uh, you know it's fake equanimity or passivity, indifference, when you don't feel connected, you actually feel maybe close to denial that it's happening. When I ask people, when they say, um, I felt really indifferent, and I'll ask them to explain more, and here are some things that come out. Emotional emptiness. Distanced. Disconnected from my own feelings. Absence of compassion or connection. These are things that I've gathered from actual people's feelings of and, and they're saying this with a lot of equanimity and um, compassion for themselves. So when we say all beings are owners of their karma, sometimes we use that short sentence to um, signify the whole thing, their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. It sounds cold and aloof, but really it can be said with a lot of compassion because when you see people suffering because of what's going on in their karma, uh, or obviously, I mean, it's, um, it brings about a, an openness and a connection to them. Or it could bring resignation or helplessness that we don't possess a sense of agency, that we can't do anything about it, But actually, you know, maybe we can. Maybe it's just reaching out and connecting and acknowledging, as was said here before. Just acknowledging the, the, um, I see you. I recognize who you are. And to the extent that I can, I recognize what you're going through. And it's always good to say, I have more to learn. But... This is as as much as I can. I see how you are, what it is that's happening. So we're not that helpless, and we do have a sense of agency to know what's going on, to see clearly, to care deeply, and then to act wisely. 
with whatever may be happening. So it's important that we know a sense of equanimity when it happens. Sometimes it feels like there's nothing going on and we mistake that for um, equanimity, but it's really passivity. Or sometimes we feel really connected, but we don't know what to do. There might be a sense of helplessness, but we do feel like we can take in what's going on. So really know when equanimity is there for you because it's something to really actually acknowledge in ourselves, that spaciousness. So I'd like to end with this from Goethe. One of the things, um, this is about having a sense of agency. I want to relate back to that. So this is from Goethe, and he says that, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. Of course, this is on the relative level. I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So we do have this power, this sense of agency, but we need to exercise it when we can be spacious inside, take it all in, balanced, connected, calm, and know that we have some access to discernment so we can act wisely. So I hope that um, we can learn this in ourselves. I'm still, of course, learning. And um, a lot of what I say, the advice that I give, I wish I could do, too. (laughs) Um, Sometimes, you know, talks about the wounded healer. And that's a lot of Dharma teachers are just that, because we've been through it and still going through it. So... We can talk about it a little bit. So let's sit for a moment. And um, I chose this poem by this beautiful woman, Donna Markova. To fully blossom into life, to really let ourselves open to all of what is going on within us so we can open to with more wisdom what's going on around us. This is from her book, I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days to allow my living to open me to make me less afraid and more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing 
a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. So let's be quiet for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.